the very first page of the Bible, what do we find God doing? He's making, He's creating, He's forming things. He's working, and as He does, He is creating things that are good. He's creating good. And not only good, but multiplying good. That's the kind of good that He makes. And then He creates man. He says, we're going to create man in our image. And so if God's going to create man to be like God is like, in some sense, then we might ask the question, well, what is what does it mean for man to be created in God's image? And that's a question that we may spend eternity unpacking the answer to. But at the very least, we can expect that if man's going to look like God, if humans are going to look like God, then humans are going to do something like God has been doing up to the point at which he made them. Multiplying good by their work. That's one thing that sets humans apart from any. Any, any earthly creature that is not human is that humans have the ability as bearers of God's image to multiply good by their work. And of course, that image has been broken by sin. And yet, as we've seen in Ephesians, God has begun the process in Christ of restoring that image. So what do you do when you are not only made in the image of God, but what do you do? What is your life look like when you are being restored to the image of God in Christ. You replace a life of taking with a life of giving. You join God in multiplying good for others, and you do it in very practical ways, in big life categories. And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning in Ephesians verses 25 through 32. There's going to be a call that's going to describe in terms of major life categories what it looks like as bearers of God's restored image to replace a life of taking with a life of giving. We take when we take from a position of fear and we give from a position of privilege. Paul's been describing that privilege, that safe privilege in Christ. And so now, he really begins in that very specific way to say, here's what it looks like to live that out. He does that in Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. If you're using a sanctuary copy of the Bible, which you'll find in the back, Ephesians 4, 25 is on page 978. Now, as you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Ephesians 4, 25-32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and 
clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Paul is going to really work through four categories that are primarily categories of action uh, in which he's going to call us to take something off, to put off the old ways of doing things, and to put something on in real action categories. And then at the end, he's going, to, he's going to talk in terms of attitude categories. And in between, he's going to describe what's at stake. The very heart of God is bound up in us responding, not only individually, but responding to each other in the ways that are described in this passage. And so as he moves from things that are largely action to the things that are largely attitude, we begin to see that there are really layers to the kinds of things that he's describing here. And so this is a passage that is relevant for the brand new believer, for the brand new believer in Ephesus who has just come out of pagan idol worship, who's come out of a very dysfunctional kind of life, as they hear things like, don't lie anymore. And there are layers to that as well that go all the way down to the depths of our heart that, that are for people who have long since left behind a practice of lying and yet still have uh, steps in the process of being drawn into the image of Christ that are really a matter of the heart and heart attitudes. And so this really is for all of us. There's something here for all of us Today, as we follow the Father in action and as we follow the Father in attitude, honoring the Spirit's affection. He starts with the category of honesty in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Those people who bear God's restored image in Christ We belong to the God whose word is always reliable. As we come to God, we can find ourselves as we listen to him, we can say, I don't have to be nervous that God is sort of posturing, that God is saying things in such a way that are sort of in his best interests and maybe it's what I want to hear. And I can can believe most of it, but there's maybe 10% that's been left out because it would be inconvenient for God to tell me about it. When God speaks, we can, we can absolutely stand firm on what he says. And so the, the author of the letter to the Hebrews goes so far as to say that it is impossible for God to lie. We can find ourselves, even as God's word makes us uncomfortable in our own sin, we can be absolutely comfortable with the fact that God has not said anything even slightly dishonest to us. He's been absolutely above board. So now, we have the opportunity to speak with that same kind of reliability to one another. To speak like God speaks. And of course, at a very simple level, uh, this requires putting off falsehood. We want our speech to be reliable in in a way that reflects the reliability of the way God speaks, then what has to be taken off? The story's been told of, of a sculptor who was asked, well, how do, you, how do you create a sculpture? 
out of like a block of stone. And he said, well, I, if I'm trying to create a sculpture of a lion, then I cut off the parts that don't look like a lion. What you're left with is, is a lion. Now, that's easier said than done. But the same picture is here. In order to speak in a way that reflects a picture of God's reliable speaking, we have to cut off the things that are not true. Again, sometimes this is a matter of setting aside a very destructive and fairly obvious habit of explicit lying, but it doesn't stop there for us. Sometimes it goes much deeper than that, and our, our dishonesty uh, can be something a lot more subtle. It can come in the form of misrepresenting someone else's opinions or misrepresenting someone else's argument. It can come in a very subtle form, changing the meaning of words on the fly as we're trying to make our point to someone. We can really ask ourselves the question, am I trying to manipulate this person by what I'm saying, or am I simply trying to tell the truth? We need to really watch for those subtler forms of deception. To, to say, you know what, if, th if this person were able to really read my mind right now, then would they hear something different than what I'm saying? Now, that doesn't mean that we need to tell everyone everything that's true. Uh, we do sometimes need to be selective. We need to be attentive to the need of the moment. We're going to get to that. But as we're being selective, we want to make sure that we are not, even in some subtle way, also being deceptive that we're not shifting around our way of saying things in such a way as to uh, protect ourselves or even to disadvantage the other person, to disadvantage one another. We, we don't need to fear the truth in any form. If the truth were only bad news, then we would have lots of things to fear because there is bad news about us. But when, when we play with the truth, what we end up doing is really papering over an opportunity to hold on to the ultimate truth, the ultimate truth about Christ. Uh, when we try to shift around the way that we're speaking to one another, maybe in order to appease each other or keep ourselves out of trouble, sometimes what we're doing is setting aside the opportunity to say to one another, you know what, this is a hard truth that we're dealing with. Maybe we have a hard thing between us that we need to talk about. And if I'm not honest about it, if I'm dishonest even in a subtle way, then I'm, I'm papering over the opportunity to say, you know what, we have a big truth that we can stand on together. We trust in the truth about Christ. And so the best news, the best true thing that we share together is something that really deals with all the other hard truths for us. And so we can stand there together and we need to, because this restored image of God in us is not only an individual thing. The reason that we're supposed to put away falsehood and speak the truth with our neighbors, with each other, is that we are members one of another. The restored image of God is something that shows up in us together. We belong to each other. And if you've ever seen self-deception at work in a person, you know that can be the, the most destructive kind of deception when somebody's deceiving himself or herself. We don't want to do that to ourselves as a body. Even in subtle ways, 
We want to be giving the truth about Jesus the opportunity to shape our relationships with each other. Now, sometimes dishonesty happens to us and it hurts. If you've been lied to or you've been lied about, that feels hot. It can feel angering and it is angering. And so there is a connection here. Uh, It's a connection that we see in Psalm 4, verse 2. David is experiencing this and, and he's talking to the Lord and talking to people and kind of going back and forth. And he says in Psalm 4, 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? People are lying about David. They're they're they're. They're smearing his reputation with things that are not true and that perhaps they're getting people to believe about him. He's saying, how long are you going to do this? And it's angering because it's something that's truly wrong. And so he doesn't pretend about that. In fact, he reflects what Paul says in the next verse, in verse 26 of Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. So be angry actually comes in the form of a command. Grammatically, it's a, it's a command. Grammatical command can do a variety of different things. It can tell somebody, you need, to, you need to do something different than what you're doing. Go outside and play. Not what you're doing now, it's not what you want to do, it's what you need to do. That kind of a command. A command can also come in the form of an invitation. Come on in. Where it's something that somebody is already doing or already wants to do, and you're acknowledging, yes, do what you're already doing. I think it's the second one that's happening here. Be angry. Because it's very, very rare that somebody actually has to be commanded to respond with emotion to something that they really believe is wrong. How often is it that somebody really has to be told, be angry, when they're not already? And yet, there's an acknowledgement here that there are things in this world that really are wrong. And it would not do us any good to respond to those things simply by pretending. And it's not going to do us any good to try to get our emotional response to pretend either. Anger is an emotional response to something that's really wrong. And the beautiful call of God is not to pretend that the wrong is not wrong there. And at the same time, along with the acknowledgement that there's wrong, along with the acknowledgement that we know it and we respond to it, there is an acknowledgement and a warning that anger is something that can very quickly be twisted and used for a great deal of damage. And so Paul says the same thing that David says, even as he processes anger about people's lies against him. This is Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. Then he says, ponder, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So there is uh, a right way to be angry and therefore to process anger. And there are very dangerous ways of doing it. And the call is not Shut your eyes to what's making you angry. The call is open your eyes even further. Because there's more going on in this situation than you can see. Or than I can see. 
If I'm in David's situation and I'm hearing people slander me and uh, say things about me that are not true, those things are going to be right in front of my face. And they're going to look really, really big. In fact, they may be the only kinds of things that I can see at the time. And David is saying, and Paul is reflecting, there is actually more happening than what you see. So open your eyes further. Ponder, ponder in your hearts on your own beds and be silent, not by pretending, but by seeing. David goes on in Psalm 4, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So the call of Psalm 4, as well as the call in Ephesians 4, is to deal with anger really and honestly and to deal with it quickly. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it quickly. And if we don't, there's a lot at stake because it's not neutral. We've actually seen this from virtually the beginning. What does anger do when it's at work in the human, in the sinful human heart? Most of you probably know the story of Cain and Abel. Perhaps all of us do. Cain and Abel were both offering sacrifices to God, and God looked with favor on Abel's sacrifice, and he didn't look with favor on Cain's sacrifice. Whole theological question about why, and there are good answers to it. The point here is what happens to Cain. But for Cain and his offering, Genesis 4-5 says, he had no regard, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And Here's the picture that we ought to have in our mind about what anger looks like when it's undealt with. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's like a wild animal waiting to devour not the person that we're angry with, but waiting to devour us. And so we must be careful with it. Neglecting to deal with anger in a biblical and timely way gives an opportunity to the one who came only to steal and to kill and destroy. So Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give an opportunity to the devil. So, practically speaking, if we're going to be honest with the fact that there are real things that really do make us angry, and we're also going to be careful not to be pounced on by the anger that wants to destroy us and others, what are we going to do? How do we actually, what steps do we actually take? A few things that I want to give us to, to actually do something with. The first one uh, is to pray for the person that you're angry with. Anger with someone? Pray for them. Pray honestly. Bring the whole thing before God. When you see somebody in the Psalms praying about somebody who's mistreating them, they're not only praying for good things to happen to that person. We'll get there. They're also bringing before God the whole burden, the whole scope of the pain that they're experiencing 
at the hands of this other person who's abusing them. They're saying, Lord, this, this hurts. This person's doing what's wrong. This person actually deserves to be punished for what they're doing. This is really, really hard for me to process. He's bringing the whole burden of his pain and laying it at the feet of God. That's what we're told to do in 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves, this is chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Here's someone smearing your reputation, and God's saying, I'm going to exalt you at the proper time. So bring it to me, casting all, all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. When you bring all your anxieties, you describe them all to the Lord, not to somebody else, not just to yourself, to the Lord, you find yourself in a really good place to experience the fact that the sovereign one cares for you. So no matter what this other person may do to your reputation, the one who has perfect control over all things is the one who cares for you perfectly. Really, when when you bring all of that before your father, you end yourself in Psalm 4.8. At the end of this process, when David does this, here's where he ends. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So we pray. When it's contextually appropriate, this is number two, when when there's a, a, a good opportunity for it, and you really do need to deal with a person, when you need to communicate with someone about something that has caused anger, when possible, do it in person. Do it in person. Dealing with these things in person instead of uh, in writing, um, instead of in some other way, helps us to to really be honest uh, about the fact that the other person is a person. It helps to personalize the individual that we're struggling with. When you're face-to-face with someone, uh, it helps you to be honest about the situation, it helps you to be honest about who the person is. It's uncomfortable. Some of that, dishon- or that, that uncomfortability comes from the fact that we're forced to be honest about the fact that this is a person. And if a believer, this is a brother or a sister, this is someone who's part of me. It's an uncomfortable thing to, be, to realize and yet a very healthy thing to realize as well. Dealing with things in person has the theological impact of concretely, practically opposing Satan's goals for us. His goal from the very beginning has been to tear us apart. And when we say, no, we've got something we're working on together, but we're going to do it together in person. We say to Satan, you lose, Jesus wins, we're together. Third, do something genuinely good for the other person. When there's anger in the room, there's coolness in the room, when, when you can, seek to demonstrate goodwill to the other person by doing good for the other person. I remember, and I think I've shared this before, we had missionaries that, we, that our church supported in Fort Dodge, and, and the director of this mission agency described a time in his own marriage when uh, there had been just a real season of coolness between uh, him and his wife, and Things hadn't been going well, and they weren't connecting with each other, and it was negative. And uh, it's hard to know what to do in those kinds of situations. And so what he did is he, he got a 
bowl of warm water and a towel. And he just came to his wife and without any words, just started to wash her feet. No words, but a powerful way of saying, we're not going to let anger have the last word. And it made a big difference in uh, his life, in his marriage, in his relationship with his wife. And it just took the coolness and began to warm it. So pray, pray fully, pray honestly, deal with these things in person when possible, and do good for the other person. Now there's a lot of sacrifice involved in this, isn't there? And so we might ask the question, what's in it for me, and how do I make sure that I get what's in it for me? The simplest way of trying to make sure that I get what's in it for me is by taking it. And so Paul warns us about that as well in verse 28. At a very simple level, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, when this was written to the people of Ephesus, this was written to a society that was very heavily a manual labor society. Uh, a situation in which there was really, in terms of things that people had, there was a lot more scarcity. It was a lot harder to get your hands on the sort of the stuff of life. And so it would have, there, there probably would have been a, uh, a much higher temptation if you had the opportunity just to pilfer something from someone else. Especially if the only way of getting things for yourself was to work really, really hard uh, day in and day out. And so you feel like here's somebody who is, that, that I work for and I have to work really hard just to sort of get by and they have plenty of extra and it'd be really easy just to think this person will get along without this little bit of spare change that I've found. They'll get along without this household item that I've found. They're going to be just fine. Paul says, don't, don't go there. That doesn't match who you are. The mindset that he describes here might mean that I don't steal in order to get. It goes beyond that as well. And so Paul goes beyond that with the Ephesians and he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, having something to share isn't only sort of something that that the former thief should do in order to make up for their previous stealing. And you do that for a while, and then you get back to neutral, and then you can work for yourself. The restored image of God in us takes on the kind of work that God does, the kind of work that multiplies good for others. Genesis 1.11 And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. Fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. What's that? That's software development. That's programming. God is not only creating fruit and saying, first come, first serve, get it quickly. He's creating multiplying good Fruit that has in it the ability to be installed in the dirt and make more fruit. And as we bear God's image, 
we actually have the opportunity to multiply good as well. And so Paul calls a person who has the physical capacity to do it to work in such a way that you do good for others, that you receive good for yourself, and that there's even more left over to pass on to somebody else. Isn't that an amazing thing that our work has the ability to do? That when you do even manual labor for someone, which many of the Ephesians would have had to do, they're, they're, they're not only sort of, sort of scrounging their own existence out of the dirt in order to live to see another day. When somebody builds a chair for someone, that person gets a chair that they get to use for years. Here's this labor that's done that results in good for someone for years. And the person who built the chair gets at least to live to see another day. But so often, by the way God has designed labor, there's more left over after that as well. Here's the ability to make something, to, to rearrange something that does good for someone, does good for you, and then there's the opportunity to say, there's even more left over. And I get to multiply that good for someone else. And for most of us, our experience of work works that way. We have, in a very real sense, somewhat more than we need to get by. And so it's helpful sometimes to stop and think, do I have some kind of specific way of preparing to share my excess with someone else? That excess can be used up very, very quickly. And so it, it is helpful. As you, as you work on your finances, as you take the money that God has provided for you as a result of your good labor, to say, I'm going to be intentional about taking some of that, just setting it aside, saying, it's not mine to use for me. I'm going to use this for someone else. Now, there, there's a regular pattern of giving. That's not so much what I'm referring to. I'm saying when there's, when there's a little bit extra, you don't know what you're going to do with it yet, just to say, I'm going to put this in my blessing account. I'm going to set this aside, maybe in an envelope, maybe in a digital system. I'm going to set it aside so that I can watch for an opportunity to care for someone with my excess. God has multiplied good through my work, just like he does through his work, and I'm eager to follow him in it. We can meet physical needs by our work, and we can meet personal needs by our words. And so that's where Paul goes next. Verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This idea of corrupting talk is, is really a word that's used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to rotten food. And I, I remember reading to our sons the book Farmer Boy, and there's all kinds, of, all kinds of really graphic, beautiful descriptions of what it looked like to grow up on a farm in upstate New York. And one of the things that, that happens in the book is they're storing apples. And you can store apples for a long time, but it describes how you have to watch these apples really carefully as you store them, because if one even has a bruise in it, then that thing's going to fester, it's going to rot, and what's it going to do to the rest of the apples? That one bad apple cliche, right? It really does ruin the whole batch. And so there's a, there's a picture here of rotten speech, the kind of speech that, that isn't only bad in itself, but it, but it spreads. And, of course, this can be subtle as well. We can 
say things that don't use any swear words, but at the same time, spread a rottenness between us. It can be saying something just subtly negative about someone else. It can be something that's just crude or profane, something that makes light of sin. Let no rotten talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This is not only a matter of avoiding negative speech. This is pointing to the fact that not only is death in the power of the tongue, but life is in the power of the tongue as well. We have the ability to build each other up, to build up the body by the kinds of things that we say to one another. And one of the main ways for us to to be ready to build one another up, one of the main ways we can do that by speaking is by making sure, and we've focused on this, by making sure that we're listening. Because if we're listening, then we can speak in such a way, as, as Paul describes it, that meets the need. As fits the occasion. Literally, according to the need. So there's the ability to meet a need out of our excess as we work, and there's the ability to meet all kinds of needs by our words. Like, Proverbs describes a word in season, how fitting it is. Perhaps you've had somebody speak a word in season to you that that wasn't only something that was generally positive, like, oh, things are going to get better, but it shows that the person that you're talking to really understands what you're going through, really understands your situation, and has spoken directly to it. And it hasn't only spoken to it in a general way, but has helped you to know, what, what am I supposed to be trusting Jesus for in this situation? And now I have an opportunity to. And so we speak the truth in timely ways to one another in order to give grace to one another, in order mainly to help one another know what it means to trust Christ now from where I really am. All this honesty and dealing with anger and thinking about work and speaking in ways that are not rotten but that instead build up, these are all intensely practical. And they are also intensely personal. Every single one of them is deeply relational. It's something for each one of us and it's relevant for all of us. We can't escape being in this together, and we don't want to, and God doesn't want us to. He wants us to be in this together. And in order to bring us together into His presence, in order to provide access together into His presence, how has He done that for us? Ephesians says that we have access to the Father together in one Spirit. Paul says that we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, brings us together as the body of Christ. He's the one who unifies us. And to the extent that we sort of hedge our speech in order to create safe distance between each other, to the extent that we allow our anger to get a hold of us, to the extent that we simply take instead of giving or use our speech to tear down, 
we, we don't only do something God has told us not to do. We grieve His very Spirit. Because we tear down the work that He's doing to bring us together. Perhaps you've seen something of this even in your own children as you seek to create peace in your home and you see them fighting with each other and tearing each other apart. It grieves your heart. And how much more so for God Himself who has given us His own Spirit to bring us together into His presence, the presence of our loving Father, to see us there together fighting against what He has given to us, what He's done for us. God is deeply and personally invested in us, in each of us and in all of us together. Paul says God takes this personally and rightly so. So do not grieve Him. And he takes that to the level of attitude in verses 31 and 32. We can look at this fairly briefly because really verse 31 doesn't require a great deal of explanation. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Do not treat each other or think of each other or look at each other as enemies any longer. Even in little ways, take all the negativity of your perspective toward one another and put it away. Put it all away. Put it away in terms of your speech. Put it away in terms of your attitudes. If you have a negative heart toward a brother or a sister, let it be done with. That's a high call. And it does acknowledge the fact that there are things that do, that do need to be put away. When we put away bitterness, we're not only putting away things that we've made up. We're putting away a response to something that's real. We talked about this in our life development class today as we talked about forgiveness. And so Paul doesn't leave us only with a call to put away our negative response to one another. He tells us about the power for it. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So there's a replacement of the negative attitude with positive attitudes, a heart of kindness, tender-hearted, good-boweled, we could describe it that way if it meant anything to us. It comes from deep within us. And how? He says, as God in Christ forgave you. So there is certainly the fact that God has forgiven us, and because God has forgiven us, we ought to forgive one another. But it's not only the fact that God has forgiven us. We forgive as God has forgiven us, and he tells us how, in Christ. God does not forgive us arbitrarily. God does not forgive us by pretending. God does not simply say, well, I have to, so I'm going to forgive you. My sin had to be paid for. And it has been. And that is how God forgives me. And that is how we forgive each other. That's the power. We sang quite a few songs this morning that were beautiful in their expression of how it's possible for us as sinners to come before a holy God and to be fully accepted uh, with a heart of kindness and a heart of compassion and a heart of goodwill. On the bloody tree, behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? 
Look at Him there. You see Him there. What you see there is Jesus absorbing all of God's wrath against your sin. And what this passage calls us to do is to take that and turn it outward. Your brother or your sister has done something genuinely wrong toward you. You're not called to pretend. You're not called to try to push aside the feelings that come from the hurt. The call is, on the bloody tree, behold him. Sinner, hurt by another sinner, will this not suffice? What is it that you want to have happen to the person who hurt you? We have a justice instinct. And sometimes we think, well, it should be paid for. It should be paid for at least a little bit. And it hasn't only been paid for a little bit. It's been paid for completely. When you behold him on the bloody tree, he is paying completely for your brother's sin, for your sister's sin. Your brother's sin, your sister's sin hurt you far more than that. It violated the character of a holy God. And God himself said, it's enough. So we ought to run from the temptation to add to the need for payment for our brother's sin, our sister's sin. It's been completely paid for by Christ. We extend forgiveness on the same basis on which God forgave us, and that is in Christ, so that we acknowledge that what He has done would reconcile us, this is Ephesians 2, would reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We forgive one another, not arbitrarily, not by pretending, but by acknowledging that what Jesus did is altogether enough. Now, uh, we need these things for each other as we walk with each other through ministry. Because as we walk with each other through ministry, we have an enemy who wants to undo what we're trying to do. And the main way he's going to do it is by getting in the middle of our relationships with each other. We don't have a lot of open conflict here right now. Praise the Lord for that. You're to be commended for that. That's great. As we continue to move forward, we will face opposition from the enemy. Uh, the place where we're moving forward right now, uh, the, the, the sort of congregational project that we're working on, I just want to give you a brief update about because this, it, what, we're, what we're talking about here, applies to our moving forward together. The thing that we're working on right now and waiting on the Lord for is the opportunity to invest individually and as a church in the development of seminary students particularly students locally at, at Southern Seminary. Wonderful opportunity. You guys have responded in wonderful ways. Right now we have seven individuals or families who have said, I am committed to, uh, to being willing to be a seminary family advocate. We have 13 individuals who have said, I'm willing to be a ministry mentor uh, for a student. As we do that, the Lord has led us one step at a time has continued to uh, confirm one step at a time, partly by, by, by fostering a willingness in people's heart to say, we want to do th those things and we're willing to help financially with what the Lord has given us. And we have a remaining need. I've shared this as well. We need students. We need students and we keep looking. I had uh, an encouraging conversation with a seminary professor this week. It didn't, it didn't fix the issue, we still need students. We still need to pray. We still need to ask. 
And we face the possibility of temptation as we wait. Sometimes waiting is the hardest part of the work. I want to read a, a brief passage in Acts that I think gives a picture of where we may find ourselves here. This is Acts 16, uh, verses 6 through 10. Paul and his companions are on a missionary journey going through Asia, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go on into Bithynia, that's up north, uh, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Here they are. Here are people who are out wanting to share the word of God with people, and they're not... They're not being allowed to do that. It's, it's, it's not happening yet. We have a plan for it. We have the word. We're willing. We want to do it. And it's not happening. What are the temptations when you find yourself in that season of waiting? You start pointing the finger. You can point your finger outward and say, well, maybe it's them. Maybe it's, maybe it's the people in Asia. We're not being allowed to go there because they're hard-hearted and they won't listen. Well, it could be, but... We're, we're really just imagining at that point. We don't know for sure, right? I'm not going to say it's them. Well, maybe it's me. Maybe there's some kind of hidden issue in myself that's hindering moving forward with this ministry. Maybe it's me. Again, I'm imagining at this point. God hasn't told me something about this. What's the other danger? Maybe it's them. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's you. Maybe Paul and whoever he's traveling with are looking at each other and saying, Which one, who's the Jonah here? Who's the one who's getting in the way of us being able to do fruitful ministry? What does the passage say it was? Maybe it's them. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's God. In fact, that's what the passage says. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And it wasn't because of a problem with them or you or me. It was because God had something different in mind for them. They end up at Troas. They're at the end of Asia on the beach. They can't go any further. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. This is across the sea. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, God hasn't provided that kind of a vision for us. And at the same time, God has confirmed, here's the next faithful step for you. So as we do it, as we prepare to help seminary students do the waiting that's involved in ministry, let's keep pursuing warm hearts toward one another. Let's pursuing, setting aside any form of self-protective falsehood, taking for ourselves uh, the dangers of anger. Let's practice being tender-hearted toward one another that we might extend that to others as well, even in the long waiting work of ministry. Father, by your Spirit, give us eyes to behold Jesus paying for all of our sin at a level that satisfies even you in your perfect holiness. Let us behold him as our great high priest, seated in resurrected victory, pleading his own righteousness before you, on our behalf and on one another's behalf. Help us to live this out in practical ways by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name.